This is Sam Anderson, lead pastor at Central Church. Thank you for listening to the Central Church Podcast. Make sure you rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. And to keep up with everything happening in our faith community, visit centralchurch.cc. This morning, we're going to talk about David. We're going to talk about David. But before we get into that, I want to ask you a question. Do you like movies with twists? You know, I'm talking about like, uh, like uh, well, the old ones like The Usual Suspects, right? Or Gone Girl, or Get Out, or um, pretty much any M. M. Night Shyamalan movie ever made. Hashtag Bruce Willis is dead. Sorry, spoiler alert. Um, but the thing is with movies with twists is that you really can only watch them once. You can't re-watch them because as soon as you know the twist, the movie completely changes because now you know it's coming. And so you don't experience the movie in the same way ever again. Uh, one of my favorite movies of all time is an old, and it's, it's, I know it's old, I'm old. It's, <laughs> it's a movie from the 70s called The Sting. I don't know, everybody ever seen it? Uh, Robert Redford and... and um, and uh, oh, I forgot it first service too. Paul Newman. Um, anyway, but um, great, great movie. But I've always wished that I could just kind of erase my memory and go back and watch it again for the first time without knowing the twist, because you, you're never surprised by it ever again, you know. And it changes the way you see the movie. Well, the same thing is true sometimes when we read the Bible. Because we're so close to the story, we're so familiar with the story that the twists that are already there, and there's a lot of twists in the biblical story, there's a lot of surprises and things that were unexpected in the biblical story, but we don't see it that way because we're so familiar with it. We know what's going to happen. And so this morning what I want to try to do is take a, a, a fresh look at the story of David and, and, and how it connects to the story of Jesus, but hopefully to try to highlight some of the twists and turns, some of the surprises that would have been experienced by the first people who experienced these stories that we sort of forget. So let's pray and let's get into it. God, thank you once again for this opportunity that we have to gather together to talk about you and, and to study your word and to worship you and to experience the, the joy of, of coming together and lifting our voices and singing to you and, and just all the things that we love about, about uh, gathering together in worship. And God, I pray that you will, uh, Lord, give me the words to speak this morning and give us ears to hear so that we can learn from your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, David, a little back up a little bit. Give me a little history. And any, any of you guys who have been here long enough to hear me preach, you know I'm going to give you some history lessons. So just in. We're going to talk about uh, David and, and see the, we're li- we, Sam left off with Moses last week, right? And so from Moses on, for generations upon generations, the people of Israel didn't have any sort of government. They didn't have any sort of king or leaders or, you know, group. All they really had were uh, judges that will, would settle disputes. Like if somebody got into a dispute over whose land is whose, they would have a judge that would make those decisions. But they didn't have any sort of real government. They had prophets. And they had prophets that would tell them what God wanted. 
They had prophets who would tell them what God expected of them. But other than that, they had no government whatsoever. And God liked it that way. But after a while, the people of Israel got a little jealous. See, they looked around at all the other nations around them. They looked around at, at, the, at the Syrians, and they looked around at the Egyptians, and looked around and said, all these other countries have kings. We want a king. Why can't we have a king? We, have a, we want to have a king like everybody else has a king. You know, like, like little kids, they always see something, whatever somebody else wants, and they want it too. So the Israelites wanted a king, and, and God warns them. He says, listen, you really don't want a king. A king is not a good idea. See, what he says to us is, uh, listen, if you, if you have a king, he's going he's gonna to take your sons, and he's going to send them off to war. He's going to take your daughters, and he's going to have his way with them, and he's going to use them for whatever he wants, whether it be working in the kitchens or other things. He's going to tax you unfairly. He's going to treat you unjustly. It's not going to be pretty. Sound familiar? Kind of like, you know, today. God says, listen, you really don't want a king. And the people of Israel said, no, no, we really do. We want a king. God said, okay, all right. You really want a king, I'll give you a king. But you're not going to like it. So the first king that uh, the Israelites had was a guy named Saul. Now Saul was everything you'd expect from a king. Saul was a big, he was taller. Scripture says he was taller than anybody else. He was big, he was strong, he was beautiful, he was handsome, all those sorts of things. And he was dumb as a post. I mean, he was, well, not just dumb as a post. He, He was nuts. He was literally crazy. So that really didn't work out very well. So the second king comes along, and the second king is David. Now David is everything they didn't expect from a king. David is the youngest of eight brothers. He's got seven older brothers. All his older brothers are big. They're, they, they serve in the army. They're all strong. They're, they're, you know, everybody knows them. They're real cool. And David goes off in the field and watches the sheep while he strums his guitar and writes poetry. I mean, it wasn't a call to guitar back then, but basically that's what it was. That's what David was. So basically, David was the band geek. How many of you were band geeks in school? How many of you made fun of the band geeks in school? You all are lying in church. I know there's more of you that made fun of the band geeks, because I was a band geek, and then I, everybody else made fun of the band geeks. But that's who David was. He wasn't, he wasn't the guy that everybody thought was going to be king. He's, he's the unexpected. He's the, the unusual king. But when David became king, finally, he was just what the Israelites wanted. He was just what they wanted. He was, a, he was a warrior. He beat a giant. He won all these wars. He captured their capital and he built their capital. He was everything that in the Middle East at that time you would have wanted from a king. It was everything you wanted. Now, it wasn't necessarily what God wanted. God wasn't looking for a warrior king. He didn't, he didn't want people, his people to fight their battles that way. In fact, David even understood this. In 1 Chronicles chapter 28, it says this. It says, David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my fellow Israelites, my people. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the covenant of the Lord. 
for, a, for the footstool of our God, and I made plans to build it. But God said to me, you are not to build a house for my name because you are a warrior and have shed blood. God said, listen, David, I didn't want a warrior. I didn't want a killer. It's not what I wanted. So you don't get to build my temple. That's not for you. He wasn't necessarily the king that God wanted. He was the king that the Israelites wanted, and God gave them so that they would learn their lesson. But the story gets a little more complicated there because at that point, from David on, things just got worse and worse. I mean, even while David was king, let's be honest, David was no prince. Well, I mean, he was a king, but he wasn't a... David, I mean, let's be honest, David was a rapist and a murderer and a bad father and, and honestly not a great king. But the Israelites loved him, and they, and, they, and they thought he was just the greatest. And after David, the kings after David got worse and worse and worse and worse until they just didn't have any king anymore because other kingdoms, other, other empires came in and just wiped him out. And said, nope, you're not going to have a king anymore. We're in charge. But the Israelites longed for a king. They longed for a return of David. They longed for, for, for God to restore that, that, that wonderful thing that they thought they had with David. The wonderful kingdom. And so all the prophets after David would, would prophesy to the people of Israel and say, one day God's going to give you a king. One day David's going to come back. As back, Jeremiah 23 is one of these passages where we see this. Jeremiah says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will raise, reign wisely and do what, is right, uh, do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is, what the, name, uh, or this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. See, God said, okay, you're all longing for the good old days of David? All right, we'll work with that. You want another David? All right, we'll send you another David. But God said, it's not going to be like you think. It's going to be another twist. It's going to be another unexpected twist because then Jesus arrives on the scene and he is not what the Israelites expected at all. Not what they thought was, was going to be this great return of David. But before we get into that, I need to give you a little background on what it was like in Israel when Jesus was on the scene. See, about 30 or 35 years before Jesus was born, the Romans arrived. The Roman Empire had been spreading throughout the whole known world at the time. And about 30 to 35 years before Jesus uh, was born, the Romans invaded Israel. And they laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, their capital, and they starved people out and they killed thousands of people. Thousands of people. So this is just within a generation of Jesus' birth this is happening. And then, of course, you know the Christmas story when Jesus is born and there he's proclaimed, hey, the king is born, the king of the Jews is born. And Herod says, wait a minute, I'm king of the Jews. And so he goes and slaughters all these children to try to get rid of Jesus, right? 
That's the kind of environment they're in. And then even in Jesus' lifetime, this, uh, this guy named Pontius Pilate, you've probably heard of him, the guy that convicted Jesus and put him on the cross. Yeah, he had been reigning in, in that part of the world for a long time. And, and the people, people in Israel were taxed insanely, just taxed to the teeth. It was crazy. But they had no citizenship, they had no civil rights, they had nothing. I mean, talk about taxation without representation and lack of civil I mean, That's what they lived in. That was their world. Matter of fact, there's a story, it's recorded by a historian by the name of Josephus. And it says that um, Pilate wanted to build an aqueduct. You know what an aqueduct is? It's like, a, it's like a bridge for carrying water. So Jerusalem is where Pilate had his headquarters. And Jerusalem's up on a hill. So it doesn't have a great supply of water because water tends to run downhill. So Pilate says, I want to build an aqueduct from Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, to Jerusalem, to carry water from Bethlehem to Jerusalem so he can have all this fresh water for his baths and all that sort of stuff. So Pilate says, well, I got to pay for this somehow. I know all these Jews, every, every Sabbath, they go to the temple and they take their tithes and offerings to the temple and, and put, leave it there. Sounds good to me. So Pilate goes into the temple and takes all their tithes and offerings and uses it to fund his public works project to build this aqueduct. Now you can imagine how the Israelites reacted. They started protesting. They said, Pilate, you got to give us our money back. you got to put it back in the temple. So what did Pilate do? He killed them all. He sent his soldiers and he killed them all. This is the kind of world that existed in Israel when Jesus arrives on the scene. His people, the Israelites, were enduring injustice and occupation, violence, taxation, poverty. They were in rough shape. They were ruled by an unjust ruler who was abusing his power and not, being, not, not having their goodwill in mind at all. And so Jesus arrives on the scene, and at, the, at this time, Sam talked about this a little bit last week, the, the political slash religious leaders of the day were primarily divided into two groups. The one group you had was basically the one percenters. They were called Sadducees. And they were the rich and the powerful people, and they had given up, given up waiting for the next David, for this Savior to come. They're like, you know what? We've seen some, some guys claiming to be the Messiah, and they came, and then they got killed, so we're done. We're going to just work with the Romans. We're going to make lemonade, you know? We're going to take this bad situation and try to make something good out. So they collaborated with the Romans. But most people, the other 99%, generally aligned with another party called the Pharisees. Now, you've probably heard of them. So the Pharisees were still waiting for a Messiah. They were still waiting for a Savior. They were waiting for the next David. And they expected that when this next David would arrive, he would solve all their problems. He would come in and he would wipe out the Romans. He would set up a new kingdom. He would, he, would, they, he, they would, he would kill all of Israel's enemies and everything would be great. That's what they expected. And instead of that, they got Jesus. So Jesus walks on the scene and as you know, Jesus comes in and says, Hey, this is what God wants. He wants you to pray for your enemies. He wants you to love your enemies and pray for them. 
and do good to them. Say, what? You can imagine how the people would have reacted. They're enduring the worst occupation and oppression and mistreatment by an unjust ruler that you can imagine. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, love them. See, we look at that and we go, oh, that's so nice. Love your enemies. Yeah, that's a great idea. You know, when Jesus said it, the people said, I got to love those Romans? Yeah, right. It was, it was, it's unexpected. It was not what people thought. As a matter of fact, that, that, uh, that aqueduct that Pilate tried to build and the people protested and they got killed, Jesus actually even talks about that. In, uh, in Luke chapter 13, he doesn't talk about the aqueduct itself, but he, it's, it's related to the same incident. Jesus says, you know those guys that Pilate slaughtered? You know those guys in Galilee that Pilate slaughtered? And you're waiting for Jesus to go, yeah. Yeah, is God going to kill Pilate? And Jesus says, you know, if you don't change your ways, you're going to end up just like him. What are you saying? Jesus, we're the problem? We're the problem? Pilate's the problem. Jesus was not what the people expected. The people expected a warrior. The people expected a king like David. That's what we get, you know, the... Toward the end of Jesus' time on the earth, he, he came into Jerusalem during one of the festivals, right? And he, and he came in riding on, a, riding on a donkey. You know the story? In Mark chapter 11, you see this. It says, Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming of our father David! Hosanna in highest heaven. That word Hosanna is a, is, a, is a Hebrew word. It just means save. Basically means, yeah, David's coming and he's going to clear house. He's going to beat all of our enemies. That's what the people expected. So when Jesus is riding in on the donkey, they're putting their clothes down in front of him like, you're our king. Come on, lead us. And Jesus is like, ain't going to be like that. It's not going to be like that. Some Pharisees asked Jesus, they said, in Luke 17, it says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus said, listen, the kingdom of God is already here. The kingdom of God is you. Those Romans... All that oppression, all that evil things that are happening in the government, it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant, Jesus says. You're the kingdom of God. Be the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is right here. Jesus didn't come to fix Rome. He didn't come to defeat Israel's enemies. He didn't come to do that. He came to establish a new thing called the kingdom of God completely separate. He didn't come to fix government. He came to be king over a kingdom. The gospel that the, uh, that the apostles always preached, and, and we hear this phrase all throughout the New Testament, Jesus is Lord, right? We say it, Jesus is Lord. To us, it's just a phrase. Oh, yeah, Jesus is Lord. Yeah, well, normal. In, the, in their day, it was treason. 
It was treasonous to say that. See, that word gospel in the, in the Greek language, is, it's evangelion. I don't know if I pronounce it right. I'm not very good with that sort of thing, but it's evangelion. It's where we get our word evangelism. Evangelion. But that word had a very specific meaning in Rome. And the word, see, what would happen was is when a, when a new Caesar would take power, he would send out evangelists. He would send out messengers carrying the good news, the gospel, the evangel. And they would go to all the towns in the Roman Empire and they would say, there's a new Caesar. The new Caesar is our Lord and Savior, Augustus. And he will bring, pre- bring peace to the empire. They literally would say that, that Caesar is Lord and Savior. So when you see in the Bible the apostles saying Jesus is Lord and Savior, they're literally saying Caesar is not who he says he is. Caesar is irrelevant. Jesus is Lord and Savior. It was treason. That's why Jesus was killed. That's why all the apostles ended up being killed. You know, when when Pilate put Jesus on the cross, what did it say above his head? Anybody? King of the Jews, right? That was his crime, claiming to be a king ahead of Caesar. And when the Jewish leaders were trying to protect their own things, what did they say? We have no king but Caesar. That was the twist. That was the twist because the people wanted a savior. The people wanted a new David that would come and defeat their enemies and set up a new just government. And Jesus says, that's not what I'm about. The kingdom of God is not about fixing government. It's not about defeating enemies. It's about establishing an alternative community based on love and fellowship that has no dependence on governments or politicians or leaders at all. It's an alternative community to show the world that there's a better way to live. It's called God's way. It's called the kingdom of God. Separate and distinct from the kingdoms of this world. See, that's what God was trying to tell Israel in the first place. Israel's only context was the word king. So God said, you're not going to like a king. King's going to send your sons off to war, and he's going to take advantage of your daughters, and he's going to overtax you, and he's going to be unjust, and it's going to be terrible. If God was to say that to us today, he'd say, listen, governments suck. They tax you, they send your sons to war, they do all these terrible things. Doesn't matter if it's Republican, Democrat, Tory, Whig, I don't know what political parties exist in Norway, but whatever they are, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because governments are a disaster no matter who's in charge. Because human beings are a disaster. Because power is the most addictive substance in the world. More addictive than cocaine or heroin or anything you can think of. Power is addictive. And once people get it, they lose their minds. There is never going to be a just government on this world because government means I want to control. I want to be in power. 
And Jesus said, that's not how, the wor- how it works in my kingdom. Mark chapter 10, Jesus says this. He called his disciples together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. That's the twist. Yes, Jesus is king. Yes, Jesus is Lord. But Jesus does not rule by conquering his enemies. He rules by loving them. That's how he rules. He rules by loving and caring, by giving himself, by sacrificing himself, by loving people. That's how he rules. You say, well, that doesn't work. It doesn't work in human terms. It works perfectly in Jesus' terms. David Fitch is a writer and a teacher. He wrote a book recently, very recently, called The Church of Us Versus Them. And he puts it this way. He says, Jesus does not create enemies, but he does disrupt the enemy-making machine. And by doing so, reveals those who love being enemies. If there is anything that describes our society right now, it is that we love being enemies. We love making enemies. Anybody who disagrees with me is evil. Anybody who has a different uh, a thought, a different idea, a different perspective than, I, than mine, they're not wrong, not even different, they're evil, and they must be defeated. That's the way our culture works today. Folks, that is completely 180 degrees backwards from what Jesus calls us to be in the kingdom of God. And yet, Christians are getting sucked into that enemy-making machine just as much as anybody else in this world. We get sucked into that enemy-making machine and we need to be set free from that enemy-making machine because too often we're just like the Israelites. We put our trust in a David, a better king, a better government. We put our trust and our hope in electing the right people, in passing the right laws, in getting the right judges, in having the right policies. Folks, that's all fool's gold. It's never going to fix anything. A couple of you are old enough to remember a group called The Who. Remember? Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. It's true. I don't care who you elect. I don't care who you put in power. It's going to be a disaster because that's how humans are. That's what God was trying to tell the the Israelites all along. Government is not going to work. You need to be part of my kingdom and do things my way. That's your salvation. That's your hope. Folks, the only true hope is found in the transforming power of the love of Jesus that's found in the kingdom of God. It's not found in governments. It's not found in politicians, no matter who they are. I don't care who, who you like, who you love, who's your favorite talking head. It doesn't matter. It's not going to solve the problem. 
But we're so tempted. We're so tempted. And I, I, I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone. Don't, don't misunderstand. I'm, one of the things that uh, you find whenever you're a pastor, and I've been a pastor for longer than some of you have been alive, um, pastors discover that what happens is, is we get God preaches to us and convicts us and then says, okay, now go tell your church. That's the way it works. So I'm not telling you anything that I'm really good at. I get caught in the same trap. We're tempted to be like the Israelites. We want to we wanna fix things by fixing the government. We want to fix things by, by having good leaders and all those sorts of things. And God says, no, that's not the way it works. You can't put your faith in those things. Our faith is in Jesus. Our faith is in God. And that word faith is a very complicated word that we have oversimplified. We take a look at the word faith, and in the Greek, the Greek word is pistis. Pistis. And we look at that word, oh, oh, that means trust. I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust God. I have faith in God, so I trust God. And that's true. That's one side of the word faith. But there's another side of the word faith. We don't use it as much anymore. Back in the day in England, when the English language was a little bit younger, they used to command people to keep faith with their Lord, to keep faith with their king. What did that mean? It meant allegiance. In fact, there's a new book out by the name, uh, guy, the author's by, uh, guy by the name of Matthew Bates, and the title of the book is Salvation by Allegiance Alone. I love that title. Love that title. Because that's what the word faith means. It's not just trust. It means I pledge allegiance to Jesus. That's what it means. Not to a flag, not to a country, not to a party, not to a document, not to a political philosophy. We pledge our allegiance to Jesus alone. Paul said it this way in Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. He says this, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not talking about some faraway place, heaven. He's talking about the kingdom of God. In the, in the, in the Gospels, we hear the phrase kingdom of God. Paul calls it the kingdom of heaven. It's the same thing. It's the lordship of Jesus Christ, and our allegiance belongs to him and him alone. You say, well, wait a second. Can I, be, can I pledge my allegiance to Jesus and, but, but also, uh, uh, you know, be a good American? No. I'm sorry. No, you can't. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. If you do, you're going to love one, you're going to hate the other. You're going to compromise. If we call ourselves Christians, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus... We pledge our allegiance to him, to his kingdom, to his way of doing things, to his ethics, to his politics, to his morality. Now, I'm not saying we, have, we can just ignore the political realities of our world. Don't misunderstand me. Do we, you know, should we still vote? Sure. 
I think it's a, it's a good thing for a country to have ethical, intelligent leaders. I think that's a good thing. We should vote. Should we speak truth to power? You better believe it. We should be the loudest voice saying, this is wrong, it's evil, it needs to stop. If Jesus says it's wrong, it's wrong. I don't care what party is supporting it. If it's wrong, it's wrong. And we should be the ones saying that. But folks, we've got to do that without making enemies, without creating enemies. I have a a difficult thing to swallow, and I have the hardest time with this myself. But there are no evil people. It's like there are no good people. There are just people. And they're all loved by God. Do they do evil things? Yes. Do they do racist things? Yes. But they are people loved by God. We can, we can call out evil acts and evil words without calling people evil. You understand the difference? That's what Jesus calls us to do. He calls us to love those who think they're our enemies. Not that we should have enemies and love them, but that if people consider themselves our enemies, we need to love them. And in so doing, make them no longer enemies. Just to close up, I just want to say we're, we're all guilty of this. I'm guilty of it. We're all guilty of having allegiances that are split and compromising what Jesus teaches us with other things. We're all guilty of it. And we're all guilty of, of thinking of people as enemies and evil that need to be defeated. But folks, the Jesus way is not the American way. In America, we're all about winning. We're all about beating our enemies. That's just the American way, right? We've got to win. Jesus says it's not about winning, it's about loving. Winning is irrelevant. Loving is what's important. That's what allegiance to the kingdom of God means. We're going to sing another song, and as we do that, I, I, I challenge you to take a few minutes and just allow the Holy Spirit to reveal to you the ways in which you have surrendered your allegiance to Jesus to the enemy-making machine of our culture. And maybe look for ways to renew that allegiance to Jesus, to once again say, you are Lord, you are King, and all the systems of this world are irrelevant to you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time had to dig into your word and to hear what your spirit has to say to our hearts. Thank you for listening to the Central Church Podcast. We hope this has encouraged you, inspired you, and you experience life change. If you are unable to attend our Sunday gatherings but still want to support this faith community, visit our giving page at centralchurch.cc. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes.